So, good morning. This morning I wanted to draw on one of the most frequently repeated teachings from the Dhammapada. The Buddha says, you know, all experience is led by mind, shaped by mind, made by mind. That all that we are arises with our thoughts, and with our thoughts we make the world. This is a very pivotal teaching. The Buddha is not saying that there is no objective world, but he is saying that our experience of the world around us and the world of our experience is something that is being constructed and born moment to moment, and that the world of experience that we build inwardly will indeed become our world of experience. So the Buddha placed tremendous emphasis upon mindfulness of the mind. Mindfulness of the mind. This is not an easy exploration. It's not an easy investigation. And bear in mind, when the Buddha speaks about the contemplation of the mind, in the Pali there is only one word for mind, heart. So he's speaking about this whole domain of psychological, emotional experience that is being born and shaped moment to moment, constructing our beliefs about who we are and constructing our beliefs about how the world is. Mindfulness of mind is an elusive, an elusive contemplation and it requires a real, I think, a genuine steadiness and stillness inwardly. I mean, if we came in here on the first morning of a retreat and said, well, let's all just sit down and contemplate the mind. For most people, they would have a sense of being under-resourced to do this. You know, and contemplating the mind might very well turn either into a contemplation of spaciness or uh, uh, simply being lost or overwhelmed by thought patterns and by mind states. So it's not surprising at all in the early texts that, you know, such value is given to developing stillness, uh, calm abiding, a certain resilience within our attentiveness, our capacity to be able to sustain attention in the present moment, this emphasis upon collectedness, upon samatha or samadhi, really provides this base for contemplating the mind. But it's an indispensable contemplation because this is our world. If you look at some of the ways that the Buddha speaks about the mind, it, he doesn't speak about it as a, an object, a state, a thing. The Buddha speaks very much of the mind as a process, as he speaks of all things as process. He speaks of body as process, as self as process. So in every moment, we actually have an experience of bodying, the shape of the body, the life of the body being affected by so many conditions. Many moments of experience, we have a process of selfing, how the self of the moment, the I am, 
is being shaped by a multiplicity of conditions, both physical, psychological, conditions externally. And every moment we have the experience of minding. Minding. So we bring mind, this whole notion of mind, into process level and to see how the mind of the moment is being shaped. So in the early teachings, the, the Buddha very much talks about the mind really abiding in a state of potentiality. We don't have one mind, do we? We have obsessing mind, we have happy mind, we have agitated mind, we have calm mind, we have spacious mind, we have dull mind, some of you may have encountered. We have a whole range of minding experiences, don't we, that change so many times in a single day. And it often feels quite accidental, those changes. We're not quite sure how we ended up in an agitated mind or a Sometimes we're not even quite sure how we ended up in a calm mind. But the Buddha says it's very, very important to recognize this potentiality of minding. And, you know, the instructions in the contemplation are quite clear to, to know the mind that is affected by greed, to know the mind that's affected by generosity, to know the mind that's affected by agitation, to know the mind that's affected by gladness, to know the mind of contractedness, and to know the mind of expansiveness. So begin to put, bring mindfulness to really bring into the light of our attention how the mind of the moment is being affected or shaped is another word. Now, many of those affecting patterns or shaping patterns, such as agitation or dullness, they, they seem to be out of our control. You know, they just, that is the mind of the moment. But what we actually see in the, in the path is that we're genuinely cultivating a mind of spaciousness, a mind of calm, a mind of brightness. But that is a journey. It is a journey. Sometimes I think it can be really quite useful to pause at the beginning of a sitting or at the end of a sitting or the beginning of a walking or the end of a walking or in any transition period during our day just to be able to stop for a moment to just examine inwardly and ask ourselves what is the shape of the mind just now. Sometimes these are referred to as mental states, sometimes they're referred to as moods. What we see, one thing we see very clearly is how changeable those mental states are, how changeable, sometimes uh, elusive those moods seem to be. Some of them are very familiar. It's like we have a certain expertise in them almost, you know. We might have an expertise in, in agitation, you know, or anxiety, you know. We might have a certain expertise in dullness, which can feel quite unfortunate. Um, but we see some of them are very familiar, but they are changeable. 
sometimes we, we begin truly to sense about how the mood of the moment really does shape our world. It probably affects everything, how you move through the building, whether you get to a walking path or not. It will affect how you see the people around you, how you will see yourself or judge yourself. You know, if the mind of the moment is rather aversive, you know, how, how is the world perceived? We don't see the world as being peopled with, you know, populated with lovely, delightful people and, you know, pleasant events. You know, we see all the fools around us, you know, and everything that needs fixing and everything that needs improving. You know, if we, if we leave, you know, if we move out of the meditation room with an, a mind shaped by agitation, you know, we'll probably get very busy. Our eyes will get busy. You know, the note, particularly the eyes, the notice board will become entrancing. You know, um, the outfits that people are wearing today suddenly become of compelling interest to us. You know, we'll get busy. You know, we'll, we'll go rearrange our, our drawers. You know, we'll, we'll do something just to do something with that agitation. If the mind is a shape by dullness, we may actually really not know at all what we're doing. Mm? So it is helpful to pause and just to check in and to see that none of these kind of shapings of the mind are life sentences. They're not terminal conditions. And we start to look at actually what sustains them, what actually perpetuates particularly difficult mental states, but also what helps us to sustain lovely states of mind, of calm, of spaciousness, of gladness. Because we are actually, with mindfulness, participants in how the mind is shaped in every moment. We see that what really sustains particularly difficult mental states or moods, you know, the primary culprit is thought. The primary culprit is thought. If you want a difficult mental state, to continue, just think. You know, you have a mental state of aversion. Well, let's have a big aversive story. You know, let's have a big aversive narrative about myself, about other people. You know, and you will notice that when difficult mental states tend to be much bigger generators of story. We don't have so many big narratives about lovely mental states. You know, a mind of spaciousness, a mind of calm. We don't get into a lot of obsession or rumination about this. You know, why am I calm? Where did that come from? I'm not supposed to be calm. You know, maybe I should do something about this calm. You know, I'm such a calm person. We tend not to get into the big ruminations, but you notice with the difficult mental states what powerful generators they are of story. It's almost like the story is almost trying to legitimize or justify the state of the moment or explain it, explain it. But of course what happens when difficult mental states start generating big stories, those stories in turn feed back to strengthen and deepen and solidify the difficult mental state. It is why, you know, the Buddha so, so strongly encouraged in the cultivation of mindfulness. He said, establish mindfulness to the extent that is necessary for bare knowing. 
Establish mindfulness to the extent that is necessary for bare knowing. Ah, agitation as agitation. Aversion as aversion. Calm as calm. Brightness as brightness. Dullness as dullness. That is the only thought you need. Everything else is extra. We might also look at what sustains, because we can see in this practice, much of it is concerned with actually cultivating, developing, nourishing, and bringing into being the loveliness of the mind. The loveliness of the mind. The mind's capacity for brightness, the mind's capacity for equanimity and balance, the mind's capacity for appreciation, for generosity. And you might well question, well, how actually do we deepen and learn to sustain those qualities that really gladden the heart but also clarify, clarify perception and our way of seeing? And we actually do nourish and cultivate the lovely primarily through attending to them. Even in the midst of agitation, you know, we might ask ourselves, where is there calmness in this moment? Ah, the palm of my hand. Ah, the sensation of my foot touching the ground. In the midst of dullness, we might ask ourselves, well, where is the sense of aliveness in this moment? Oh, I can begin to sense the spectrum of moving fluidity of sensation in the body. I begin to sense the arising and passing of sounds. I begin to sense the beginnings and the endings of a single breath or a thought. I begin to cultivate that fluidity. In the midst of aversive mind states, we might actually just look and ask ourselves, well, what is well in this moment? What can be appreciated in this moment? What can be touch us in the moment? So it is learning, you know, because we also do see all that we are arises with our thoughts, and our thoughts begin with our mind states. And we've all experienced when there's a very contracted mind, isn't there just a very contracted sense of self and I am, you know? Focusing on the imperfect, focusing on, on the flaws and, the, and, and what is wrong and what needs to be improved. When there is a spacious state of mind, you might notice that the contractedness of selfing really begins to ease, begins to calm. Now, there's a very big spectrum, of course, of states of mind. Some of them are very familiar with us, to us. Some of them feel quite personal. And actually, some of them are very much, univer- much more universal. Much more universal. And you know, in, in, the, in the early text, these, these universal, these more universal mind states, are, they're both mind states and habit patterns. And you know, we do meet them in our practice, and we do meet them in our life, and it doesn't matter if we've been practicing for 30 years, we really need to have a heads up around their presence and their absence. They're so easily dismissed as being hindrances, 
you know, and old students, their eyes tend to glaze over and say, oh, I know all about hindrances, you know, or I'm past the hindrances, good luck with that one. You know, or, or, you know, they don't really matter, you know, they're just something to get over. When the Buddha speaks about these patterns and mind states of sensual desire, of aversion, of sleepiness of dull and dullness, of agitation and worry and doubt, he speaks of these as being the primary forgetfulness factors. These are the mind states and the habit patterns that most directly sabotage intentionality. It's really helpful to notice that. You know, if you ever noticed, you know, you go into a, perhaps a walking period with the intention, you know, to sustain your attention through the walking period, and then, oh, Look, the bunny hopping across the grass, you know. I think I'll go check out the garden, you know, see if the bunnies are in the garden, you know. Or, you know, suddenly there's a, a, a very pleasant thought pattern or daydream. And we'll forget, you know, this walking business just kind of takes care of itself. I can just go up and down my path. And meanwhile, I can just entertain this wonderful daydream or reverie, you know. You just see, you know, doubt. You just see, you know, you, you, know, you have the... You signed up for this retreat, you're here, you know, and, you know, and, and yet, oh, no, I'm not sure I can do this, you know, maybe I, maybe I need to be kinder for myself, I need to take a day off, you know, um, you know, you just see how so directly these mind states sabotage intentionality and take us back into very habitual ways of seeing, ways of perceiving, ways of thinking about ourselves. And the Buddha really said that these, these five patterns are really the five manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. These are the ways that greed, hatred, and delusion, which, you know, feel like big words, don't they? And, and you know, we, we'd not likely think of ourselves as a sort of hateful person or, you know, I'm not a greedy person. I just like a few things, you know. Uh, you, know but, you know, I'm not greedy, you know. I'm not a hateful person. I just have a few aversive thoughts, you know. Uh, I'm not a deluded person. I just get lost sometimes, you know. So the Buddha really speaks about these five patterns as being the five manifestations of my five most evident and accessible manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion, in the early teaching, says, you know, the Buddha says, these are the three manifestations of this primary core of confusion, or not knowing what's going on, or sometimes referred to as ignorance, again, which sounds like a big, big word, but I think there's many, many moments in our life we, we're just really not sure what's going on. We're not quite sure, you know, things shouldn't be changing the way that they do. You know, or, you know, what is this distress all about? Why, why is there distress? Why is there suffering? So in terms of actually beginning to really sense how our world is shaped, I think it is really essential to look at these, these five primary patterns because they have such a, a, a dominant effect in shaping our experience of the moment. Craving for sensual desire, it, it's, not, it's not putting a downer on appreciation. 
it's not putting a downer on appreciating and being receptive to the the lovely you know and the delightful that is around us in fact it's so important for us to to foster that capacity to be sensitive to and be touched by the lovely and the delightful because this gladdens the heart and it brings spaciousness the sensual desire is is a different creature you know this is the creature that arises when we out of discontent This is a creature that arises when we feel this moment is just not good enough. It's not offering me enough. It's not exciting enough. It's not stimulating enough. It's not uh, affirming enough. And, and sensual desire arises out of that place of discontent. And it also arises out of the discontent that I'm not enough. I don't have what I need. You know, the sense of deficit or lack. What do we do with that? We get busy. We try to fill the vacuums. We try to camouflage the discontent. It's, not, it's much easier at home than it is here. You know, at home you just open the fridge or, you know, turn on your iPhone or, you know, call a friend or, you know, do something, anything to be, you know, away from that sense of discontent. Here it's a little bit more challenging, but there's plenty around to be, you know, servants of that craving for sensual pleasure, that sensual desire, you know. It's, it's helpful, you know, the, when the Buddha talks about restraint and guarding the sense doors, he doesn't talk about this as a negative impulse. talks about restraint and guarding the sensible doors as an act of kindness for our own well-being and quite frankly as an act of kindness for the world around us and for the well-being of others. So we do see, you know, you probably sense at times those impulses arise, that just that sense of want to reach out to make contact with something that's, you know, more pleasant than what is here right now. We might see our, our sense doors, and again, often the eyes becoming very busy. We might get a sense of what it is actually to, to bring a collectedness into those moments rather than feeding that pattern through endlessly reenacting it. We might actually restrain and, and collect ourselves as a way of guarding our own hearts, as a way of guarding our own minds, the well-being of our hearts and minds, to be able to ask ourselves in this moment, what is lacking? What in this moment? is actually lacking? Is there enough present in this moment for sensitivity, for kindness, for a sense of connectedness, for aliveness? Beginning to actually probe these patterns as kind of doorways into an investigation, into contentment and ease and sufficiency. Because this whole culture of insufficiency that so drives sensual craving can be so predominant and so central in our lives. And, you know, it's a collective forgetfulness. It's not just an individual forgetfulness. It's a collective forgetfulness. 
we might start to really sense, you know, when, when the mind of aversion is present, you know, irritability, frustration, judgment, blame, shame, jealousy, comparing, you know, that, all that kind of busyness of aversion, which is so productive. And again, you know, sometimes it's helpful to, to get a sense of the somatic impression of aversion, to befriend it. Not to be aversive to aversion, but to befriend it. What does aversion feel like? How do I know this? How do I know this in the body? How do I know this in how my, my eyes and my ears, my sense doors are being used or employed? How do I know this in terms of the thoughts that are arising and being generated? Can, I, can aversion be befriended? It's not that we have to replace it immediately with something else. That is often an, another act of aversion. You know, sometimes meta gets very, very wisely used. And sometimes meta gets kind of unwisely used when it just gets slapped on aversion, you know, with gritted teeth, you know, we're saying, may I be peaceful, you know, and may you be peaceful, you know. And meta is getting slapped onto aversion, and it's actually often an aversive mechanism to make this go away. Meta in those moments may actually be much more fully in our willingness to befriend and to make room and to understand and to know aversion rather than either being driven by it or fleeing from it or being identified with it. Sleepiness and dullness is an easier one to spot, although we often have quite a few stories about it, about you know, sometimes it's life fatigue, but sometimes this is our, our most available mechanism for dissociating. You know, and sleepiness and dullness is not just about snoozing on the cushion, you know, or, you know, chin on the chest. Sleepiness and dullness is often much more in this just kind of vague reverie state, you know. Uh, you know, kind of here, kind of not here. Uh, time sometimes passes really quickly. You know, it's, it's actually not necessarily unpleasant, except if you want to be awake, and then it feels quite unpleasant. You know. But this is the one, this is the one, you know, culturally, numbness is sought for in so many ways. When life feels too hard or too harsh or too intense, you know, how often numbness dissociation, disconnection is just sought for as a kind of refuge, but a very false and unreliable refuge. And this one, you know, this one certainly, I, I, I think you need a lot of determination within dullness and sleepiness. I think you need a lot of, of commitment to wakefulness. Uh, a lot of perseverance. You know, if you've spent more than two minutes with chin on chest, it's time to change your posture. Yeah, it's it's time to stand up. It, it's time to wake up, because it dullness is so incapacitates everything, doesn't it? It's so, you know, so incapacitates the practice. So incapacitates our capacity to be wholehearted, to be present. So incapacitates intention. This is not a place to linger. 
it's not a place to linger. I think there's a, a kindly firmness and perseverance that is needed to, to actually cultivate energy. Agitation and worry, this is again personal, it's also collective, universal, it has a very somatic sense, doesn't it? The body of agitation, the body of restlessness, the mind of agitation, the mind of restlessness. It really asks for the cultivation of calm abiding. It really asks for our willingness to, to come back again and again to the present moment and begin to learn to sustain our attentiveness. This is so much the secret of calm abiding, is our capacity to sustain our attention in present moment experience or with a meditative focus. Beginning to calming the mind, calming the agitation, you know, it's one of the first instructions in the Satipatthana discourse is breathing in, calming the formations. Breathing out, calming the formations. Calming all that is agitated. Calming all that is restless. Be aware of how we use our bodies outside the meditation room. You know, how well we can be established in a body of calm, an intentional body. The forgetfulness pattern of doubt, you know, this is, I think, probably one of the most challenging, but I also think doubt often arises in practice when our strategies for getting rid of all of the other hindrances have failed. And then we think, I can't do this. You know, I can't do this. There is no easy answer to doubt except to make constant gestures of confidence. Ongoing gestures of confidence. I commit to being present, not just in this whole sitting, I commit to being present in this body of this moment, in this breath of this moment. I commit to being present in this footfall of the moment. I commit to being present to this wakefulness of the moment, to continually sow the seeds of capacity rather than incapacity, which doubt speaks to us of. You know, the Buddha recognized, as we so also recognize, that this, there is a tension in waking up, isn't it? It's no easy thing to, to bring about radical change in the mind. It's no easy thing to, to cultivate wakefulness. And, you know, sometimes, you know, deepening in mindfulness almost seems to be the exposure to one moment of bad news after, after another, you know. So many people say, I think I was happier before I began meditating because we actually weren't actually so acutely aware of, you know, how often, how confused or, or agitated or worried or dull or aversive we can be. As we practice, we, we become aware of, of dissonance, you know. Sometimes this gap between our intention and what's actually happening between our aspirations and how we're actually living our lives, between what we value and actually what we're embodying. You know, and so often it, this kind of dissonance can be quite disturbing, can be quite disturbing for us. But the, the Buddha very much pointed out that this, this gap is actually the classroom of our practice, that there is a tension in waking up for sure, but it's not a negative tension. 
It is a creative tension because this is where we cultivate the lovely. This is where we cultivate the liberating. And it's why in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness, the Buddha puts alongside each other these two lists, one of them of the hindrance factors and one of them of the awakening factors, and really asks the question, what are we going to cultivate? What are we going to bring into being? Are we going to cultivate the hindrance factors? Are we going to cultivate the awakening factors? And, you know, too often, I think, in in practice, particularly in the West, you know, people's attention gets so focused on, you know, what's wrong, what's imperfect, what needs to be fixed, and, and sometimes even imagine that the lovely qualities of heart and mind are somehow going to come as a reward for having improved ourselves, you know, or for having fixed the difficult. And I think in the early teachings, the the orientation is quite different. It's much about cultivating the liberating, cultivating the wholesome, cultivating that which serves us well. And here the Buddha puts actually the, the, the awakening factors that begin with mindfulness, a word that becomes easily cliched, but to be mindfully present whether sitting, standing, walking, or lying down, to be mindfully present in all that we do. It is mindfulness that sets us on a path of awakening. When mindfulness is absent, we would ask, what is present? Habit, impulse, reactivity. So we're learning to establish this capacity to be mindfully present in all moments. And this is what opens the door, really, for all of the other liberating qualities and factors. When we're mindfully present, we're able to investigate. We're able to look closely into the nature of our experience. What is actually going on here? We're able to investigate moment to moment what leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress. We're able to somehow investigate these mind states or habits that at times feel so impenetrable. We're able to investigate the nature of the body. We're able to investigate the nature of the mind, the nature of our world of the moment, and the nature of our selfing of the moment on a ground of mindfulness, not an investigation of busyness and looking for answers, but an experiential investigation really rooted in the present moment. We're able to cultivate, the Pali word is virya, that often gets translated as energy, but, you know, more accurately, this is courage or heroism. And energy is part of that. But that fearless way of being, I think, in ourselves and our lives, the the courage to show up, the courage to stand still in the midst of the waves of the difficult, the courage, actually, to be present, which brings energy, which actually allows us to cultivate the, the efforts that are needed in this path. A word frequently used in the early texts is ardent, ardency, passion, enthusiasm. 
This is where the energy is. This is what is often asked for us. Half-hearted practice often, quite frankly, has quite half-hearted results and outcomes. You know, maybe I'll be present, but maybe not. You know, and, uh, you know, many people come here and they they speak about quite wisely about deepening their practice. This requires the effort. It requires ardency. Cultivate joy. It's a very important quality. We don't contrive joy. We make room for joy. We begin by being aware of what is a skillful use of our sense doors. Can we be fully present in, in listening and in seeing? Interesting that the quality that is so central in compassion of empathy. Empathy is equally the pivotal quality in the cultivation of joy. That in compassion as our hearts can tremble in the face of suffering, with joy our hearts can tremble in the face of the lovely. And that asks us to pause, to pause as we move through our day, to bring, begin to bring in those qualities of appreciation, of receptivity, our capacity to be touched, to sense what it is that gladdens the mind. And this is not just outwardly, it's also inwardly. Quite frankly, at the end of every city, in the end of every walking, you know, you should do a little bit of congratulation. Well done. May not have been perfect. But guess what? You were there. You were there to appreciate that, that commitment, to appreciate those efforts, to appreciate that steadiness, to begin actually to, to really appreciate the lovely, lovely states of mind that are present, the moments of calm, the moments of generosity. Um, ah, yes. Making room for joy. We cultivate the calm abiding, the collectedness, the, the sense of gatheredness in every moment. And it's really a, a practice. It's not so much getting calm, it's calming. Calming the thoughts, calming the mind states, calming the agitation, calming the habit patterns, so that we can begin to develop more, more sustained attentiveness, more able to sustain our attention in present moment experience or with a meditative focus, developing our capacity for this, this one-pointedness, the collectedness, and finding that we can actually also find those places of balance, to stand in the midst of all things, to be equally near to all experiences, all moments, all things, beginning to develop that resilience and that steadiness of mind that is not so easily overwhelmed or swept away, beginning to get a taste of what equanimity is. We always practice just what is present for us in any given moment. But we're also aware of the orientation in our practice, this, this orientation of cultivating that which, which heals, which gladdens, which liberates, which calms in the midst of all things, all moments, all thoughts, all body experiences. This is where we're asked to be really wisely and skillfully present. Okay, so thank you. Thank you for your attention. I hope you have a...